weight over souls Bearing in depths of my steps Left upon these skulls My timber limbs heavy Too loud to hear what heart beats Good morning, this is Ellie Newman on It's Relationship This morning my guest is Denise Sandoval And we'll be talking about her relationship to Lava May Denise is the founder of this new nonprofit Mobile Shower Project for San Francisco's Homeless So welcome Denise, thank you for joining us Thank you for having me. So you're the founder of uh, Lava May. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yes. Essentially, we are a mobile hygiene service. So we have showers and toilets on our buses, or we will have as soon as they're out on the road, um, and we will be taking them to the homeless where they are. And so there's over 6,000 homeless in San Francisco with 3,100 people living on the streets. In our tiny town of, of Sun Valley and Ketchum and Blaine County, I think that's probably hard for a lot of people to imagine what that's like living that way and living with people who are living that way on the streets. And there are only eight shower options right now. And you mentioned in some of the interviews I'd read previously with you that they're, one of the problems is that they're all centrally located in the city. Could you, could you explain why that's a problem? Yes. So um, in San Francisco, I mean, we're a small geographic area, right? Seven by seven miles. And essentially, uh, five of the facilities are are located in what's known as the Tenderloin, which is has the highest concentration of homeless people. Um, but then you go kind of southeast from there and you have the Mission and then farthest flung is the Bayview. But the homeless live in almost every neighborhood in the city. And as you move farther west, especially around Upper Haight-Ashbury, Golden Gate Park, there's a massive number of homeless people who are living there. And there are no facilities whatsoever available to them. So they are either having to use a public sink, a public fountain, or go without entirely. And so when you say, you know, they're living in that particular area, from your work so far and, and speaking with other people who work with the homeless, is it typical that when you say living on the streets, they'll sort of pick a place, a specific place or a specific area, and stay pretty local to that spot? I think that that's pretty much true. I mean, it's uh, I, San Francisco, or maybe it's all big cities, even people who live like in our home, we are sort of, um, we're habitual to certain neighborhoods. So like I hang out in my neighborhood and there's one or two other neighborhoods that we go to and the rest of the city we just avoid. And I think it's kind of the same sense when you're homeless. You stake out a place that feels familiar. You found a location that feels the safest. When it changes is when the police move people around or force them out of an area and then they have to sort of start all over again. And when that happens, are they taken to uh, a shelter or are they... There was a sit-lie law um, that's not really being enforced because there was so much backlash. Um, so what's happening is that their goods will be confiscated temporarily to get them to move out of the area. Often I think the police are trying to move in to get people to move voluntarily. But essentially they uh, aren't necessarily transported to a shelter. There's a, a massive shortage in shelter beds. And most of the shelters are not open during the day anyway when a lot of people are moved out of areas. So it's not like you can just take someone and move them into available shelter. This just not place. It's not available. Right. And so one of the interesting um, challenges that's happening right now is a movement to make it illegal to be in public parks after dark, where there's, you know, there's a lot of people who are sleeping in parks at night. And so the question is, when that happens, where are they going? You know, there's and, not and what's the motivation there. behind that? There's a, a movement of people who feel that there's a lot of vandalism and crime. People feel unsafe. People are leaving. People are, you know, homeless people are dumping. There's refuse. And so families are going to the parks and not necessarily feeling so safe. So there's a real division in the community about how to handle this and whether it's a problem or not. And so the project is uh, your, your byline is delivering dignity one shower at a time. 
and you're using decommissioned muni buses and park them at the existing nonprofits. Uh, you're expecting your first prototype out early spring, and then four buses with over providing over um, 100 showers a day. Will that be once you have the four buses, or will that be once you with the first bus? So when we released that information, we were hoping to put three showers on the buses, and then we would hit 100 a day. Now we have uh, scaled things back a little bit in order to not have crowding and to ensure safety that we are only putting two hygiene units on each bus, so they're not accessible to them, they're truly private. So if with only two shower units on the bus, we can probably only do about 80 showers a day once we get up and running and get our whole logistics and process streamlined. So it's 80 showers a day per bus. It's about 320 showers a week. And then once we have all four buses on the road, that's about 2,000 showers a week. And was the element of privacy um, a big factor when you were making the plan? Absolutely. It, and I think a lot of people might not really think about that. Oh, you know, just more, the more the better. But I'm wondering what your thoughts were on the element of privacy. Well, there's a lot of issues around um, different uh, demographics within the homeless population that don't feel safe. So women don't feel safe necessarily. Then you have the transgender population that's not always welcome. So, you know, are they showering with the men? Are they showering with the women? Are they safe doing either or? And so the idea that people, and it's also just when you are in your shower, you want to take a shower by yourself. You don't want to be in a shower stall with three people by you. You go to your gym and you can do that, but it's not it's not really about feeling relaxed and comfortable and getting, you know, a moment to yourself. Which it's is busy. important, right? I mean, it's not just about being clean, that moment of respite. And yes. especially for someone who lives out in the public and doesn't have that anywhere else. So, I mean, you're offering more really just that, that other than the cleanliness, that moment of sort of being alone in privacy, having a space and being able to be in hot water. It's wonderful that 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 was that you have thought those things through. And why is this solution? Do you feel better than other options? You know, and what what do you think were the other options available? Well, one of the things people always are often asked is, you know, why mobile? Why not just build more bricks and mortar facilities? And there are a couple of reasons behind that. The first is um, it's incredibly expensive. Uh, San Francisco Muni bus drivers don't have their own access to private toilets. They um, use merchant bathrooms. So there's a recent movement uh, to create some private facilities for the bus drivers. So I think they're going to be producing seven at the cost of about somewhere between eighty dollars and $95,000 per toilet. And it's just a toilet. That's all it is. So, you know, and, and would those be similar to the to toilets that are in San Francisco now the, that are kind of popped all around and they, they no. wash? Those are the French units, and I think those cost like $250,000 each. Oh, so my gosh. Much more scaled down, simplified version of a toilet. I don't think they're self-cleaning or anything like that. Um, <laughs> like, Poor bus know, drivers. I know, I know. And we're talking about $75,000 to retrofit a bus that has showers and toilets and two of each, you know, mm -hmm. on one bus. That's one thing. Secondly, by creating big bricks and mortar, unless I had a lot of money, I still couldn't reach people in far-flung places. You know, we would still have not enough in the Tenderloin and, you know, maybe nothing in the uh, Upper Eight Hashbury, Golden Gate Park area. So it's, it just made much more sense to be mobile. And there's a mobile revolution of people thinking about how do we provide all sorts of things from products and services, you know, to meeting homeless needs by putting things on wheels. Well, and real estate is so expensive in San Francisco yes. and yes. limited. You know, there's nowhere to go out. And the other element of that, too, is, you know, I, I 
looking over your materials, you're talking about taking the buses to where people are. Right. And, exactly. and you're, you're collaborating with the existing um, programs and structures that serve the homeless at this time. Yes, and that is one of the things that struck me early on, is that I don't have any experience working with the homeless. My background is in marketing and public relations, and it's been in other fields entirely, so it's a complete 180 for me, and I knew that if we didn't not only engage there for support, but also in partnership to deliver what we're doing, that we would fail. And thankfully, everybody's been extremely excited about the service. They all see the need, and they think it's a good solution, so we've been very fortunate. That's, that. that's fantastic, and you're approaching it in a productive way. You're thinking about collaboration and the existing entities and working together, which is going to lead you to success. <laughs> but sometimes you look at it and you're like, really? You didn't think maybe you should talk to that other person and ask them what they thought or what they were doing? You mentioned, and I, I had it on my list actually to talk about at, at some point, but we'll talk about it now, the new economy model and the sharing economy, and sometimes it's called collaborative consumption. And it seems like this fits right in with that new model. Yes, it's the idea that, you know, you, you're not having to pay for something, although that is sort of an interesting question. There have been some people who have done some serious research on, you know, thing, how things are valued and that we as individuals value the things that we pay for more than we value the things that we're given for free. Um, so I've had some interesting conversations with people about whether or not we should ask for a voluntary donation, even if it's just 25 cents, so that then people feel like they're helping us meet their needs rather than just another thing that's been been um, given out. So we're probably going to do a little um, pilot testing around that or maybe even run a focus group to see how people feel. But the idea is that, yes, we have the ability to provide something without charging people, and we're kind of doing this in collaboration with the city and with private organizations and with other nonprofits. And, yeah, I love And, and you're taking an actual physical structure that already exists, has been made, is no longer in use, and utilizing it. Yes, yeah, doing um, – Kind of minimizing our footprint as much as possible, um, taking something that's really iconic, but that, like you said, will no longer be functional for the city and using it in a new and interesting way was really important to us. And, you know, how I thought about the connection, too, of, of, you know, people say, well, people appreciate it more if they pay for it. And I bet there are other elements going on as well. You know, maybe also then they might not feel ashamed about it or, or, yes. or guilty or feel bad about themselves if they are in some way feel that they're supporting it or participating or, or interacting. And I, one thought I had had, are you, I know you're going to, when the buses are rolling, you're going to have three employees on the bus. Uh, will there be any connection down the road or any thought about having homeless people as those employees? Or will they be people who, are, who have uh, experience and are specialized in specific areas? So I'm really glad that you asked that because, um, so there'll be myself, um, whoever the executive director is right now, that's me. Uh, there'll be a project I'm guessing manager. you have a lot of hats on right now. You do. <laughs> I love to the executive director. Yes, here I am. Yeah. <laughs> How true. about marketing person? Oh, yes. Yeah, no, it, it gets a little overwhelming sometimes, but I feel incredibly supported by the community as well, so that helps. But um, we'll have a project manager, and that person will have uh, direct experience with, you know, street case management, working with the homeless, or maybe even in an ideal world come out of another shower program for the homeless so that they have that kind of experience. The project coordinator, however, I would love to be able to hire someone who is formerly homeless or who's homeless now, who is just at that point, they're ready to um, begin working and that we can sort of step them through that process. And then once we um, get the other three buses on the road, 
the project coordinator position could be a training position. So we could have that person be on board for six months and do job training and just kind of cycle through. So that would be, that would be my vision. That's a a great way to connect for for people. And so I'm going to wrap two questions up in one, one, if it's being done elsewhere. And then it kind of uh, set me thinking when you said the one person is going to be experienced in shower programs. So what, kinds of things would that person do you think know and appreciate that a typical person that you hired for that job wouldn't? Let me uh, start with that question first. So there's a whole you know, dynamic around you know, the interpersonal skills that you gain when you're working with the homeless population. Um, and it's a combination of knowing when to exercise tough love, when to be compassionate, kind of the boundaries to set. And so, you know, I've watched a couple of these people who are in these roles and they just do it so flawlessly. I mean, they come obviously from a place of compassion, but they know when they have to, you know, it's like, this is the line, you cross the line and you don't get to shower today. Boundaries and consequences. <laughs> it's good for all exactly. of us in our relationships. I talk yes. about that a lot on the show. <laughs> you know, setting clear expectations, making agreements, and then people know where they stand. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, there's also kind of a rapport that you learn um, the way to talk to people that's both respectful, but, you know, that is also... I'm listening. I'm seeing you. It's not just like you are a number moving through the system kind of thing. So I think it's a really special skill that people can develop this over time. But I think when we're out there, we need somebody who really already knows how to do this to get us off the ground so that we can be as seamless as possible. So I mean, it really is a separate culture operating within the larger culture and the, the, the way that they have rules, the homeless have rules and sort of agreements among themselves and, and codes of behavior and conduct and ways of of interacting with the larger community and society as well. Exactly. That the average person is not aware of. And I think because they aren't aware of, they feel uncomfortable interacting. You know, it's one of those, those things that once then with the buses driving around town and people being exposed to that in a, in a controlled way, it may also bridge that gap a little bit. Yeah. That would be wonderful. Yeah. And Um, so what else is doing the program? Yes. Um, So uh, when I did my research, I found out that there were about half a dozen communities across the country, almost all of them small and um, all led by faith-based groups who've taken things like used horse trailers or used mobile homes and retrofitted them with a shower, sometimes a shower and a toilet, and took it out to the homeless in their communities. And I contacted every single one of them, and they were so inspiring. They basically told me that every, that in every situation they would talk to people about you know what this meant to them and how they felt and they they were told stories of transformation that people felt human for the first time in a long time or that they were recovering their sense of dignity. So I thought if they can do it, we can do it here. So it's true, cleanliness is close to godliness from the Bible. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about that when I was was reading your your first heard the idea. And it is, you know, the element of, I love that you have that in your tagline, that it is a sense of dignity. Absolutely. Which is critical for anyone to have any sense of self-empowerment and hopefulness towards the future. Yes, you know, people always talk about, you know. And lack of shame. Yes, that homeless services just encourage people to stay homeless. And I, I, but I think the other thing, too, is that it's hard to rise out of a challenging situation like, when you experience homelessness, start to interview for jobs or seek out permanent housing. If you're not clean, you know, you're so aware of like what you smell, like how you're dressed, whether your clothes are together. And 
to have just this tiny, simple little act of compassion made available to you can be really transformative. Because you're not going to feel good about yourself internally or externally. I mean, the physical reality that you might smell and also your feeling about yourself that, you know, you're not looking good. <laughs> good. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, this, and I think, too, go ahead. I was just going to say that the number of young children who are experiencing homelessness across this country is staggering, right? And so um, one of the gentlemen who's in my video, that his son's experience, you know, they go to school. And if they haven't had a chance to shower, they're mortified that one of their classmates will think that they smell or that they've been wearing the same clothes every day for a week or whatever. And, you know, you're, you're so fragile. You're forming your identity when you're young. And then there's all these other regular pressures that are happening. You add this on top of it. It just has to be almost crippling. For and I kids. think that's an element that most of us in society, we don't think about. And you don't see the kids as much on the streets right. because thank goodness their parents seem to somehow be protecting them. They're, they're in huge numbers. And I remember yeah. reading a story about a homeless family the night that they came into the shelter that luckily did have a shower. I couldn't believe that some of these shelters don't in San Francisco. That's just incredible. But that these two little girls just sat on the fl shower floor for about 20 minutes and were kind of just lying down there letting the hot water just run on them. And you could just imagine, you know, what it must have felt like for them. Well, we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on It's Relationship. And I'm here with Denise Sandoval and we're talking about her incredibly wonderful idea and now becoming reality of Lava May bringing showers to the homeless in San Francisco. So stay with us and we'll be back in just a moment. So we're back. This is Ellie Newman on It's Relationship, and I'm here with Denise Sandoval, and we're talking about Lava May. And Denise, I want to focus a little bit about you and your personal relationship with Lava May. Um, you grew up in Texas, and you attended the University of Texas at Austin. You, you live now in San Francisco, but you've been everywhere, New York, London, Dallas, Madrid, Sydney, and Austin. I'm wondering if you're going to start showers there next. want to talk about where the initial idea came from. I know that it happened when you were walking and you had seen a homeless woman extremely upset. And we'll just spend a minute on that because I know you've told that story a thousand times. Well, let me let me just start a little bit farther back. I okay. feel like um, un until I turned 30, I think I thought the whole world revolved around me. <laughs> I just mostly was focused on myself and what I needed. When I turned 40, we were living in New York and 9-11 happened. And like for most people that, you know, changed my life. But I actually stopped doing the work that I was doing and started to volunteer with the Red Cross for the next two years. When we moved back to San Francisco, I wanted to continue to do work that made a difference in people's life. And I've been working in the nonprofit sector in different areas since then. We moved into our neighborhood, which is the Western, which used to be called the Western Edition in San Francisco, now it's called NOPA. And we've been here for seven years, and we have watched the transformation that gentrification has brought. I mean, I, I'm not against growth in the city. You have to grow or you die. I mean, look at Detroit. We don't want to be in that position. Right. But we don't seem to be able to do it in a very compassionate way. Um, we've displaced a lot of people. So there were a lot of older African-American families in our neighborhood who um, some of them own their properties and have sold and done really well, and others were renting. And for those renting, some of them have really gotten pushed out because they can no longer afford the rising rents. Um, there are two gentlemen in particular who actually became homeless as a result of this. And we know them really well, and I've lost track of them. I don't know what's happened to them. But it really began to break my heart when I began to see that, you know, just right here outside our door, you know, the city was shifting and homelessness seemed to be growing. And... 
I knew that I wanted to try and figure something out, but I, I didn't know what that was until I passed that young woman um, who was sitting on the street and crying and saying and over, over and over and over again that she would never be clean. And the little light bulb went on and, you know, I thought, wow, I wonder what her physical cleanliness options are. So that's what I was wondering. I was wondering if it was an aha moment, if you were already on the path of looking for something and a way to participate and a way to help. And then that was like, aha, that's the yeah. way. How then did the idea develop from that? Where did the idea of the buses come from? You know, I have this love of those British double-decker buses. Oh, I do and too. Literally, instantly, that was the first thought I and had. And the taxis. Put, yes, yes. <laughs> I was going to put six showers on the bottom and I was going to put, you know, hairdressing and shaving and all of that stuff up on the top. And it was going to be this whole really cool system. And as I began to have the conversations with the nonprofits about doing this, they're like, you're crazy. Do one thing and do it well because you're going to like kill yourself and kill the program. So I began to whittle away. And then also sort of in talking when I found my architect. So I have the great honor of working with a gentleman named Brett Turpeluk. He was the lead architect under Renzo Piano for the California Academy of Sciences. He fell in love with San Francisco and he's, he and his wife stayed here after the project was over. We met fortuitously and I approached him about this and he loved the idea and he said, you don't want just any bus. You need an iconic bus, something that means something to the city, even if it means something negative to a lot of people, and you can do something incredibly positive with it. And so that's when the idea of using a Muni bus came along. And also at that same time, I read in the paper that Muni was getting an $18 million grant from the feds to get new, greener buses. And so I thought, oh my gosh, what are they doing with the old with ones? The old. And then yeah. you, you have confidence too. I'm on the right track. You're like, exactly. okay, the universe is supporting me in this. I'm meeting the right people. These things are happening fortuitously at the right times. Yes, it's like kismet. <laughs> and is it your first venture like this? You you were in the, the nonprofit. You were helping in and volunteering in New York and then in San Francisco. Is it the first venture that you have spearheaded? It is. I mean, I've, I've had my own consulting business in the past, but, you know, it was just basically me and maybe one or two other people. But this is the first real entrepreneurial effort I have taken. <laughs> As you were at Zero One for five years, you were the chief external relations officer. You did marketing, communications, branding, PR, community relations, and drove fundraising efforts. So all things that lead perfectly to this project. What is Zero One? So Zero One is an arts nonprofit based in Silicon Valley, and they play in the sandbox where art and technology come together. So they have a cadre of artists who are also artist technologists, artist scientists, artist architects, really smart, brilliant people. And since night, since um, 19, oh my gosh, I'm in a blank, 2006. Um, they launched uh, an international biennial, and they've had several ads every two years. They've played with over 700 artists from around the world, and there's always a theme. And so Zero One is also very sort of focused on the idea that artists can make a difference in the world, that they're smart, that they're provocative, that they are, um, you know, idea, big idea people who deconstruct things and ask interesting questions that can lead to new ways of looking at things and new ways to solve problems. So that also sort of fed this whole idea in me that, you know, you can deconstruct an idea, you can impact things by being one individual um, and kind of make transformation happen. That sounds like you must have met an incredibly interesting cadre of people there yes. and inspiring. Yeah. 
So you described yourself as a dreamer and a doer, strategic, collaborative, efficient, effective, and tenacious. Again, all skills that will be helpful in, in forwarding this project. Have you felt challenged so far? Oh my God, I cannot even begin to tell you how challenged I felt. I mean, so I will tell you that I think at the very beginning, I had this idea to do this. And I thought one of two things would happen. I would start talking to the nonprofits and that they would laugh at me thinking either, you know, who are you? Why are you even getting involved in this? Or that the idea itself was ridiculous, which didn't happen. Or that they'd say, we love this and we have expertise in this area. We're going to go do this. And so that I would just plant the seed and it would either, you know, die or somebody else would, you know, grow it. <laughs> Instead, they were like, we love this and we want to help you make this happen. That's so I was like, okay, so here I go. Um, I think you know, I love coming up with ideas. Um, I'm a big idea person. Like if I had my own little think tank coming up with solutions, it, it would be really fun and fertile. But ideas, especially in this area, in Silicon Valley and San Francisco, are cheap. There are lots of brilliant people having really great ideas. And so I think I realized pretty quickly that I was passionate enough about this, that I was willing to sort of brave whatever came to make it happen. And I have felt challenged almost every day, opportunities lead to 10 more things that I have to do. Or there are things like around the bus build out. People ask me questions that I have no expertise, no idea about, and I feel completely stymied. And I sit there with my architect and I'm like, whoa, what are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? It's so complicated. And has that been a positive experience? Has that been exciting? Because you could react two different ways. You could feel overwhelmed by that, or you could feel energized and feel like, okay, there's another problem to solve. Let's do that. You know, how are yeah. we going to fix it? Where's the solution? So I won't lie. I think there are definitely moments when I just sort of feel like I just want to lie on the floor and kind of quit. I'm done. Yeah. Like, what have I done? But for, you know, the vast majority of time, it does feed me and it makes me excited and it makes me, it's pushing me and forcing me to grow in a lot of different ways. And I, I, I put a blog post on my site um, last week, some point where I said that there are some days I really feel like I'm in this by myself because I'm still the only official staff person. And then um, I had a day like that day where my husband, my six-year-old daughter and my mother-in-law went to a salvage place with me. We picked toilets, we cleaned uh. toilets, we delivered them to artists for this project that we're working on that's promote Wapa May. And I felt so incredibly surrounded by like real people on the ground helping me and loving me. And I got a response from a guy in Brazil. And he's like, just know that people around the world are rooting for you and supporting you even though you don't see us. And I just was like, oh my God. This is I'm so getting awesome. up off the floor. I'm not quitting. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to do it. And yeah. has the, so the relationship with the nonprofits has been great. How about dealing with the municipalities and the government? Were you a little surprised initially when you saw this transformation happening without kind of respect and thoughtfulness towards the community that was existing? Was it surprising to you and has that been frustrating? So surprising, I would say probably not, because if you even go back in time and look at what happened in the Fillmore District and how they gentrified that and they were supposed to take care of all the older African-American families there and provide all this affordable housing, well, that didn't happen. Didn't a happen. lot of people got displaced, right? So I think cities are really grappling with how to do this in a thoughtful way and nobody has really come up with a good solution. And as you say, because real estate is so expensive in San Francisco, it gets hard for them to find good solutions or to find developers who are really committed to ensuring that when they're creating new projects that there's truly affordable housing available. So it wasn't a big surprise. <laughs> has the government and municipalities, have they been as accepting as the nonprofits to the idea? 
So I have to say, I got very lucky. I met Bevan Dufty, who is the um, head of the Mayor's Office of HOPE, which stands for Housing Opportunity Partnership and Engagement. He's basically like the homeless czar for the city, and he loves Lava May. And because, and he's also on my advisory committee now, he has helped us navigate. Smart, smart move there. But yeah, he helped us get the Muni bus donations. He helped us with the PUCs, you know, being, allowing us to tap into fire hydrants for water, which we do pay for because they can't offer it but he helped us settle that. I need temporary parking for my buses once Muni makes them available. I can't leave them on the lot there. I have to get them off the lot immediately. He helped us find uh, parking on Treasure Island. So because of him, it's been relatively painless to navigate the process of going through, you know, the whole municipal government challenges. And where did the idea of the fire hydrants come from? Using the fire hydrants. <laughs> well, from actually the PUC, because we were um, kind of talking with them about the challenge of carrying water on board. Basically, it would be very destabilizing for the bus to carry enough water, even remotely enough water, to um, shower enough people to make it a worthwhile project. And they said, well, there's good news. There are several types of fire hydrants in the city, and there's one that you would totally be allowed to access. You know, we need to have a regulator. We need to have to figure out how to connect it to the bus and then how to discharge the water afterwards and everything like that. But they said it's totally doable and, you know, we can help you figure this out. So, God. Thank <laughs> you. I, I yeah. read the architect mentioning that this was a very unique challenge of design because the buses, you know, move and they can be at angles and they aren't a flat surface. Yeah. I, I can imagine there must be so many elements of this project that just pop up as being challenging that you never would have imagined. There must be so many details involved. Exactly. You know, there's a lot of design stuff, you know, that because of the fact even just pulling up to curb angles the bus. So then we have to think about how many drainage holes, um, drainage holes do we need to have in each shower unit so that it doesn't become stagnant and actually drains out and, you know, little things like that. How much lighting and where can we put it? Um, the wheelchair, you know, accessibility, how much space do we need for the ADA unit? Is it really going to be compliant given the constraints of the bus? So, yes. So you said you were a, a dreamer by nature and an ideas person. Are you a problem solver? Do you want to think through those details or is that part of the hard and frustrating part? Or do you enjoy, are you enjoying that? So I think my husband always says that I'm this big picture person who also is really good at executing. But if you gave me a choice, I would just stick with the big picture vision. Yeah, but, but at least you're good at the other one. <laughs> I yes, think a lot yeah. of people so I, aren't who, who are right. visionaries. It's true. And, and it's so true. is it is it the hard part? Is that the hard part or not really? It's the hard part because there are so many details and because, you know, we've raised enough. We, we continue to raise money, so we have money to retrofit the bus, and we're starting to raise more and more. But, you know, I don't really have enough to bring on staff. And I, I now have a couple of volunteers who are amazing, so I can start, you know, let, taking some things off my plate. But there's so many tendrils moving at once. There's so many balls up in the air. Right. And, and I think very different I go to sleep at night. Yeah, I go to sleep at night terrified that I've forgotten something or that, you know, I've like, I literally have woken up at 2 o'clock in the morning going, oh, my God, what about blah, blah, blah. And Did I, I apply for I the permit? Here. Yes. And, and how about your relationship with others, with your immediate family and your extended family and friends? What was their initial reaction and their growing reaction as you, I guess, are pretty embedded in this on a daily basis? I think my husband initially was not resistant. I mean, completely supportive. He thought it was a really good idea, but he was just like, I thought you were going to be 
taking some downtime. Um, I left zero one with the express intention of having a little bit more time to really be there for my family, taking a little bit of break for myself. And I'm not very good at just doing nothing. And I essentially two months in was already on a bunch of boards and then also formulating this idea for Lava May. And so he was a little worried that I was going to, you know, vaporize myself. Um, but he's been hugely supportive. I mean, he, he, he's helped fund the initial part of this, you know, because we had to have monies to do a lot of the things as we were getting started and, you know, rolling up his sleeves and getting out there, whether it's like picking up and cleaning toilets or um, any of the events that we have to do that he's been there for me. My daughter loves this. She um, is constantly telling people at her school that her mommy works with the homeless and that she's got this bus. And, and how about, I'm assuming there were some skeptics or some skeptics. What did they say? So it's funny, I have not met anybody in person who has expressed any skepticism to me, but on occasion I will like read the comment section and a piece of publicity that we get, and there are some really cool things that people can say, like she should be using her buses to move people out of the city, mm. you know, things like that. And I, I think, okay, of course, there are going to be people who feel like this, and I just sort of have to accept that. And uh, part of me, you know, grapples with, should I make myself aware of all of the comments so that I can have, you know, good answers and response? Or should I just like, you know, shut that down and focus what I'm doing and accept the fact that there are going to be people who are opposed to this idea and be okay with it? And what, have, you de what have you decided? <laughs> I haven't quite decided yet. I'm still working it out. I'm definitely thinking you should go with the latter. You got to ignore <laughs> the naysayers and forge ahead. Unless they have a better idea, you might want to you know, say, well, where do you suggest we bust them and how will they shower there? Right. <laughs> and, and how about communicating with the homeless? Um, with the homeless and communication among the homeless and with the homeless and the various support and organizations that exist, the systems that exist, and with the community. I, I, have you sort of developed tactics on those fronts? I mean, you just talked about, you know, the community and their reaction. Um, are, is that, I mean, I can't imagine how much you have to do. We haven't even talked about fundraising yet. But with, with setting up uh, it for acceptance and being embraced by the community. Is that something that's already on your mind and on your plate? Yes. And actually it's one of the places that we started once we began to formulate ideas for the design, we held some focus groups with homeless people to talk about what their, um, you know, dream world situation would be for um, showers with, you know, buses with showers and toilets. So we've had multiple conversations along the way. And then, because of the fact that we are partnering with the nonprofits who are already working with the population of homelessness that they do, we essentially will start with that. So they will be scheduling their client base and getting them all lined up to do the showers. And then word gets out really quickly in the community. It doesn't take very much. So our hope is that we also become kind of a safe conduit for homeless people who are not currently receiving services, but who would want to shower. So they build a relationship with us over time of trust. And then because we're parked in front of, you know, organization XYZ that they go, maybe I should go in and see about, you know, getting some mental health care or see about doing some job training or whatever it is so that, you know, we build it that way. So I'm not really worried that we'll have trouble reaching um, people who are experiencing homelessness to come and use our services. That you feel like the lines of communication are, are fairly uh, successful and developed among the community itself. I do. And, you know, we'll also be, um, so we also have a, a homeless gentleman on our advisory committee. So he represents a voice um, on our advisory committee as we're doing.
in all our logistics and planning. And then not in the first bus, but in the second buses, part of what I want to do is engage artists to, I want to commission them to create um, interactive artworks on the side of the bus that faces the street that helps tell stories of homelessness, positive stories that connects the community in a broader way and breaks down this sense of otherness. And then on the side that faces the street, to create kind of a public billboard because homeless people don't have mailboxes right, that people right. can leave messages for each other about our service or anything else that would allow them to kind of you know increase their level of communication their ability to communicate it and feel connected yeah. it's fantastic and I just want to congratulate you on I mean, every time I'm like oh she's just doing it exactly right you're talking to your <laughs> user you. you're seeing what they might want you know these things that you, so you might take for granted, but that a lot of companies, even the most successful high-tech companies, don't do. And they really didn't ask their user what would improve this or what could you use. They really don't talk to the people who are going to be affected by these changes and consult and confer and let them know and set their expectations for what's happening. Isn't that funny that yeah. you would build something and not talk to the people who you want to use it? Yes, it is funny, but it's incredible how often it happens. So congratulations, Renee. You should give yourself a pat on the back. If you were in my studio, I would give you one. And so on that mode, talking about communication and kind of modern communication, it seems that you have also really embraced technology. You did your first initial fundraising on Indiegogo, and you're utilizing social media. You've got Style with Benefits supporting you with their sale of T-shirts. Is that something that you knew right uh, off the, the starting point that you were going to, to do? Yes. I mean, the, the whole point of the crowdfunding exercise beyond raising money was to demonstrate grassroots support from everyday people for a, this kind of project. And it did exactly that. We had 635 funders um, from all over the world and all the comments that are listed there. I mean, I, I have one comment that kind of sticks in my mind of a young woman who was actually in San Francisco for two years and was homeless. And she just said you know, she was interviewing for jobs all the time. And the hardest part for her is finding a place to get cleaned up. So having people share their stories with me that way was unbelievable. So it was great that we raised as much as we raised, but it was also really about proving to everybody else. And, and by everybody else, I mean other larger funders, foundations, private individuals, so on and so forth, that people want to see a service like this out there. Is there any worry, it just popped in my head, are you making San Francisco too nice of a place to be homeless in? <laughs> Or I mean, I see that skeptics could start saying that. Do we really want to, you know, make it make it nicer? I think you know there definitely is a, a subset of people out there who think that if you provide services of any kind for the homeless, that you're encouraging them to stay homeless. Um, and I think there is probably a percentage of the population, maybe 12%, that is chronically homeless and harder to to move them out of homelessness. But I think for the most part. Um, homeless people in general are really invisible. We could pass probably 70% of them and have no clue that they were homeless. A lot of young families, a rising number of senior citizens because they can't afford the rents anymore, they don't have a safety net, and they're ending up on the streets. And then um, returning veterans, of course. And then we have you know, a growing number of young LGBT youth. So I think, I think these people, if they had a choice, they would not be homeless. I'll share with you, there was a, uh, an infographic that was created. It was commissioned by the Department of Public Health here in San Francisco that showed the map of San Francisco, and it showed um, neighborhoods, uh, how much it costs to live in each neighborhood. So they would uh, they were doing, um, the benchmark was uh, full-time 
minimum wage job. Minimum wage in San Francisco is $10.55. So we're not talking Pacific Heights. In the Mission and in the Potrero area, it would take seven full-time minimum wage jobs to afford a two-bedroom, one-bath apartment. I mean, that's crazy. It is that insane. is insane, right? So we're talking about a lot of people who are falling out of that. Eviction rates went up 12% last year. They're supposed to be even higher this year. There's a thing here called the Ellis Act where landlords can boot people out of the property. It's supposed to take it off the rental market permanently. Well, 85% of it, 85% increased the use of the Ellis Act last year, and most of those properties then just turn around and were rented for much higher prices. Rent control that was supposedly protecting these people, low-income and elderly. Exactly. And so I think, you know, there's just this myth that people want to be homeless. And maybe you'll find like a really small percentage of people who want to be homeless. Or maybe for the chronically homeless, it's probably incredibly difficult to then to go inside and be, you probably have a sense of claustrophobia and foreignness moving from, you know, being out on the street all the time to then being surrounded by four walls. But people, for the most part, do not want to be homeless. And this and is the, stigma. And the, the Buses Act as a step to provide them the cleanliness and the dignity to go out and change their path. Exactly. And how about we'll end with your path. How is How do you see this fitting into your life in the future? You're raising the money now. You're getting the first bus and then the next three buses up and running. Uh, what, what do you envision your future participation in this? What will your role be once they're going? So ultimately, um, I will stay on as executive director as we're going you know, to nailing everything down. I would like to then eventually hire someone to be the executive director and I would roll on to the advisory board or once we become our own individual nonprofit, you know, um, be on the, on the board. My, the vision of the organization is to evangelize what we're doing to create a model that can be replicated in communities across the country. I would say the globe too, but there's more challenges because um, every country operates differently and I wouldn't necessarily know how to advise someone you know, in Australia, how to do this. But we're getting contacted all the time by communities, Los Angeles, Atlanta, Ohio, um, uh, Columbus, Ohio, people saying, how can we bring this here? And that's exactly what we want to do is we want to share everything that we're doing and make it possible for people to follow the footprint so that they learn from our mistakes and they learn from, you know, our, our best practices and whatnot. So I feel like my role then becomes helping and enabling other communities to do the same thing. Fantastic. And how can people support you best now? We need money, obviously, as most nonprofits, especially startup nonprofits, need. You can go to www.lavamay.org. There's a big donate button and contribute. Every penny counts. Everything helps us get closer to getting our buses on the road. Well, Denise, thank you so much for joining me and being on its relationship. It's absolutely wonderful to talk to you and I'm so excited. And we'll have to speak with you once that first bus running and, and uh, let us know how it's going. Thank you, Ellie. It was okay. a pleasure. It's fake. I say done work, waking up, pay me up, nine to five, five to one, one to eight thirty in the morning. Give me five more for my me time. Pray at work, give me five more for my knees time. I don't even need rhymes. I supply rhythm is giving me crazy.